Lord, I pray that You would speak through me today. Lord, for my words are simply just words. Unless You come and You fill me and You fill them. And so we pray, Lord, not for You to come because we know that You are here. We pray that we would listen to You. For You always speak to us, but we don't always listen. So I pray today as... I pray the Word speaks to each one of us that we would listen and that we would be changed. We pray this in Your name. Amen. Alright, you ready? Let's dive in. If you have a Bible, open your Bibles to Mark 6. Mark 6. If you would, uh, one more time, please stand out of reverence for the reading of the Scripture. If you would... uh, Stand up, and I will be starting in verse 14. Mark 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, says this, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elisha. And others said, he is a prophet like the, ones, like the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. But when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came. When Herod on his birthday gave a bank for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, for he because of, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You may be seated. Now, I don't know if many of you are accustomed to the book of Mark, but this is a strange, this is an absurd text. It seemingly is out of nowhere. You're reading along the Gospels, and if maybe you're new here or you don't read your Bible much, but the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all about Jesus. 
the focus in the main story is about Jesus and who he was and what he came to do. But here is an absurd text that kind of is just misplaced. And so the question before us today, number one, is what, is, what in the world is this doing here? Why in the world has Mark put it here? You know, in fact, I can only think of, of one other story in which Jesus really isn't the main part of the story, isn't a main character in some aspect of the story. And the only other story I can think of was really John the Baptist and his birth, as, as Phil read for us earlier. But in this story, we have the, the main epic of Jesus. And the main story is panned out and we focus on another person and another two people of John the Baptist and of Herod. So, but the question still remains, why has Mark done this? Why has he put it here? And I think the reason, the answer lies in, in, as we look in the rest of the chapter. If you look at the beginning of chapter 6, it says that he went away from there and came to his hometown. He goes to Nazareth. And so he's, he's, he goes to Nazareth, Nazareth, but he's rejected. In verse 3 it says, the people say, is this not this, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? To which Jesus responds in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown among his relatives. But then in verse 7, we see that he sends out his apostles, right? And they go out and they proclaim that people should repent. And in verse 13, we see right, the verse right before this, this story, we, we see that the results. And it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed the, with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then the story picks right up in verse 30, the end of this story, it says the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And so I, the question is, what, what is it doing here? I think the first reason is, as Jesus said, those who are underneath a prophet, underneath a teacher, are not above him. So Jesus was rejected. Jesus was, uh, will ultimately be crucified. But we as people who want to be apostles shouldn't expect a better result. And though there's these apostles who go out in verse 13 and do great things, who cast out demons, who anoint people, and they get healed. I think one of the reasons Mark puts this in here is like, it may not go perfect for you. you may, your life may not turn out like the apostles where you heal the sick and where you cast out demons. There might be some difficulties in your life. So I think that's one reason. But, the, but there's still the question that I asked as I read this. I'm like, well, why don't you just give one sentence like Luke did? In Luke 9, he's talking about this, and, um, G, and Herod hears about Jesus, and he, there's just one line that says, well, he's perplexed because it, he reminds him of John the Baptist, who I beheaded. And so, I think there's another reason that Luke, Mark tells this story, gives this account, and I think he, what he's doing here is he's comparing two men. He's comparing Herod versus John the Baptist. The king versus the prisoner. The righteous righteous versus the wicked. The person who is fearful versus the man who is bold. Alright, so kids, here's the outline. I'll get it to you at the beginning so you can get it because I usually forget. So, number one, the fear of the wicked man. First, we'll look at Herod. And then, secondly, the doubt of the righteous man. Got that? And then third, the perfection of a promised man. 
the perfection of the promised man. Alliteration. Almost sounds like a real sermon. We'll see. Um, Well, the question is first for Herod. Who is Herod? There's a slide that I made up because as I studied this week and as I learned about Herod Antipas, do we have that slide coming? Great. Um, I was confused. I was amazed at the story and the lineage of Herod. And so the only way I felt that I could possibly make sense of any of this was, was through this. And so, those of you who, are, who love genealogies and family trees, this might look a little different than some of the genealogies that you're accustomed to seeing. But who is Herod? First of all, we have Herod the Great up on top. You see that? Uh, Herod the Great was the Herod when Jesus was born. He was the one who the wise men came to and said, where is the king that we may worship him? And then he proceeded to kill all the babies who are um, who were two and under in, in Bethlehem. But this is very simplified, just so you know. It's, it's much more complex than this. But for our story, he had at least four wives. You can see them up there at the top. And when he died in 4 B.C., what happened was the Roman Empire, they divided his kingdom into four parts. They gave half of the, two of those parts to Archelaus. You can see he's the second one there. They gave a quarter of that, the, the kingdom to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the, is the person in our story here. He is the Herod that's referenced. And then on the far right, you see Philip the Tetrarch. They gave him another quarter. So they've divided Herod the Great's kingdom. But it gets better. He also had another son whose name was Aristobulus. He's that man there. He was another one of his sons. And Aristobulus had a daughter who's Herodias. That's the Herodias in this story. And then Herodias, she decides that she'll marry another one of Herod the Great's sons, Herod Philip. So first he marries Herod Philip. That's the Philip in this story as well. So she marries Uncle Philip. And then she proceeds to walk out on him. And Herod Antipas, who was married at the time as well to uh, another queen, he divorces her. And so Herodias and Herod Antipas get married. But before that, here's where it gets even better. Herodias, when she was married to Herod Philip, had a daughter whose name was Salome, or Salome, however you prefer to pronounce it. Salome, um, according to Josephus, who was a historian back in those times, uh, it was the daughter, was Her- Herodias' daughter in this story. It's debated. Regardless, Salome decided to marry her uh, it would be her mother's uncle. Follow that? Philip the Tetrarch. So, you know, it's one thing if you're, you decide to marry your uncle and then you divorce him and marry your other uncle, but I think the definition of a dysfunctional family is if your daughter marries your other uncle. Um, I don't know. I, I know this is the time for family reunions. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for the Herodian family reunion. So anyway, that's... Kind of the, gives you a history and a story of who were the kind of the ilk of the people we're dealing with. Thanks for that. Um, so the, here's Herod. And what do we see in verse 18 back to our story? We see that J- John the Baptist tells Herod, according to the Levitical law, it is not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife. Probably not even lawful. Even if she wasn't your brother's wife, she's still your uncle. It probably wouldn't have been a good idea. But 
he's saying that you shouldn't have married your brother's wife. And John the Baptist is similar to all those prophets in the Old Testament, isn't he? Many of the Old Testament prophets came to the kings and told them of their sins, told them of what they had done wrong. Unfortunately, John the Baptist is met with similar results. But we see that evidently John the Baptist had gone to Herod and then had left because in verse 7 it says, or 17, I'm sorry, it says Herod who had sent and seized John. So evidently Herodias says for the sake of Herodias this happened. So Herodias talks to her husband and so Herod goes and sends guards and arrests John the Baptist. Now this is another weird turn, isn't it? On one hand, this imprisonment really didn't do anything. Typically, kings will imprison those people who are in opposition to him. But really, this is just to appease his wife. And so we see first that Herod was afraid of his wife, feared his wife, and arrests a holy and righteous man. But yet, it says he's afraid to kill him. Because we see in verse 20 here, it says, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. So now he's he fears his wife, he fears John the Baptist. But if you go into Matthew 14, which also tells a story, it says Herod was afraid of the, the people who thought John the Baptist would be a prophet. So Herod is afraid of his wife, he's afraid of John the Baptist, he's afraid of the people. Basically, everybody who's, who's in this story. But, isn't it interesting, he was perplexed, and yet he heard him greatly. Here was Herod, this incredibly powerful man. And yet, he was driven by a deep fear in his own life. You know, the, the Bible tells other stories of this. In, in fact, in Isaiah, Isaiah 7, there is the king of Syria and a king of Israel. And they're coming against the king of Judah, or the nation of Judah. And Ahaz is the king of Judah. He was an evil king. And verse 2 in Isaiah says this, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people, I love this imagery, shook as the trees of the forest, of the forest shake before the wind. And I remember an old sermon that I read from Richard Sibbs, a Puritan. And listen to his quote and tell me if you don't think this is an accurate portrayal of Herod and of Ahaz. He says this, we may learn by this wretched king that those who are least fearful before danger are most base, basely fearful in danger. He that was so confident and willful out of danger, in danger, his heart was as the leaves of the forest. For a wicked man in danger hath no hope from God and therefore is incapable of an intercourse with him. He will trust the devil and all his instruments led with a superstitious instrument rather than God. But isn't that true even in the present day? I thought about a couple of years ago, regardless of your opinion of the, the war in Iraq, don't you remember Saddam Hussein? Where was he caught? Where was he discovered? Wasn't it in a hole in the ground? I remember one account, it said like a rat in a hole. Here was this evil man, this evil dictator who committed incredible atrocities in Iraq. And yet when danger approached, there he went into a little styrofoam six by eight cube. And he was found as a rat in a hole. And so we see, I think the story tells us, that those who are powerful, maybe in this world, may not be spiritually 
powerful, may be driven by all different circumstances. I thought back again to Mother Teresa. She was invited to a national, the National Prayer Breakfast a couple years back. And I watched this again this week. I remember hearing about it. But Mother Teresa was invited, and there's all this, this, the, the place was packed. Mother Teresa was just a tiny woman. In fact, as she's introduced, you see a couple, a couple people come and put a box in front of the, behind the podium. And so the curtains part behind the podium and up she walks. And there's this comical moment because she steps up and she's still, there's these two microphones and her face is still obscured even as she's stepping on the box by these two microphones. All you see is this, the distinctive blue and white habit on her head. You know, and they play with the microphone and it falls. It's, it's a rather comical moment. But, in fact, I'll do this right now. Um, but uh, <clears throat> what she does is she stands up and on this, the podium is the president and the vice president and all these distinguished people in America. She stands up and she pleads for the right of the unborn and rebukes all the leaders who are of this nation. Here was a woman of really no significance, especially in this, world, in this nation, of no power, of no political impact, telling these people, what is the source of what they should be fighting for? Go well, back to our story. We see that Herod is afraid. It's driven by fear. But in verse 21 it says, An opportunity came for Herod, or for Herodias, when Herod had his birthday party. Perhaps Herodias was the one who scheduled this whole thing. Perhaps she had other guests, other opening acts before this. Maybe she was off to the, on the side of the stage waiting for the perfect moment when she knew Herod well and she knew when would be the perfect time. Perhaps then she says, okay, let's go. And so to the tune of the, the Middle Eastern flutes and cymbals, there's this provocative dance that is pleasing to Herod. And so he succumbs to his desires, his passions, and makes this foolish vow. In verse 22, he says, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And then he vows to her. He says, Ask whatever you ask, whatever you ask me. He says again, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. Which, I think there's a dramatic sense of irony there. For, number one, it wasn't his kingdom to give, because it was the Romans, he was basically just the ruler of it. But he had only had a quarter of the kingdom anyway. So what was... What was half the kingdom? But Herodias, or I'm sorry, Salome, is given the vow that anything you want by your stepfather you can have up to half my kingdom. So off she goes to her mother. And what? here's a picture of what vicious hatred, resentment, a grudge will do. Herodias, without any hesitation, says, I want the head of John the Baptist. On one hand, she was, the, she was married to this man, so she probably could have gotten anything anyway. But here was the perfect opportunity. She knew she, she wouldn't have another... He, wouldn't, he was too afraid to follow through on his killing John the Baptist. But then we get a picture, don't we, into the, the daughter in this whole story, for she adds... Notice Herodias didn't say this, but the, wife, or the daughter adds this in verse 25... I want at once the head of John the Baptist with the addition on a platter. And so, there's no final words 
of John the Baptist. The executioner goes, and the deed is done. And so now we see, though, we see the fear of, John, of Herod once again because it says he's exceedingly sorry, but because of his guests, in verse 26, he follows through on this. So we see he's afraid of his wife. He's afraid of his dinner guests. He's afraid of John the Baptist. He's afraid of the people. He's afraid of every person in this story. And so by way of application, isn't it true that some of your actions, controlled and driven by fear, will have unintended consequences? And so the question is, what do you fear? What do you, how do you handle fear? You know, I've realized this as being a parent. Kids are very quick to, and it's very evident when they are fearful, isn't it? But we as adults, we get, are able to develop this facade, be able to push off so people aren't able to detect fear in our lives. But the Bible is so penetrating and it's so in, in, uh, penetrating in, in this story and perceptive and it shows Herod's real motivation in all of this is fear. To quote Phil, he has a bad case of thought, right? Last week. Fear of people. Now, just to be clear, some fear is good. Uh, for instance, I was just thinking about next week I get to change the struts on my car, and so I have a repair manual. And this is what it says about repair, replacing your struts on your car. Disassembling a strut assembly is a potentially dangerous undertaking, and utmost attention must be directed to the job, or serious injury may result. So it's just saying, hey, you're an idiot for doing this, so just make sure that you aren't too much of an idiot or things won't go well for you. So some fear is good. You know, we have a, a part in our brain called the amygdala. It's an almond-shaped uh, being or region in, our, your, in your brain that gives us fear. You know, there's, in fact, I was reading an account of a woman known only as SM to uh, protect her identity, um, but she has no fear. And neurologists literally have been studying this woman, this woman for years. Because she has uh, damaged part of her amygdala, they don't understand this debated how, what the, how much the amygdala has an impact on fear. But God has given us a thing in our brain that's some fear is good, some fear is healthy, but then some there's other times where we allow fear that's good and healthy to increase, to take root. And then we have another part of our brain where the imagination comes in. We think and we, what, what used to be just a good and a solid and a, and a healthy fear is now a what if. What if this happens? Why did I do this? What could have happened if I didn't do this? And so we see with Herod that fear was driven him to tragic consequences. But also, as we look at John the Baptist now, as we transition, if you stand up for what is right, it can also have tragic, tragic consequences. And as I read and as I thought about John the Baptist this week, isn't he somewhat of an enigma? I mean, in Luke 10, or I'm sorry, in Luke 7:28, it says this: "I tell you, Jesus is speaking, and he says this: I tell you, among those born of a woman, none is greater." Than John. He's saying, outside of me, there's nobody greater. And yet, 
isn't it interesting? There's not really anything about John. No miracles are given. We hear about we hear really three pictures in his life. We hear about his birth. We hear about when he baptized Jesus, and then we have this account here of his death. So there's really only three examples of his life. You know, I, but I thought about how different these two men are. You think of Herod and how he had a father who had multiple wives, who had multiple sons. And here was John the Baptist, of the son of a prophet who had, no, who had one wife and no sons, and no daughters, for that matter, outside of the Lord. But in this story, we just see John the Baptist silently going to beheading at the whim of an evil queen. But if you turn to Luke 7, I want to look at another text, because Luke 7 kind of fills in this story. It puts a little bit more into the, to this, where we see a little bit different side of John the Baptist. Here's the greatest man to have ever lived. He died nobly. He was a righteous man. He, he went to a king who imprisoned him and said, you can't have your wife. But in Luke 7, as you turn there, He's confronted with doubts and questions. In verse 18, it says this, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? When the men had come back to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us... I'm sorry, when the men had come to him, meaning Jesus, they said... John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, being Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So we see here, here is the man, John the Baptist. He did what he was told. He pronounced judgment to the king. And as his reward, he's imprisoned. And he goes through this deep season of doubt. He had probably anticipated this, but what he didn't, maybe he didn't understand the full context of this. There had been false messiahs before. And so, maybe John the Baptist feared he had the wrong guy. Maybe he had questions. Are you the one who is to come, or, or is there another person? Are you really... He had seen John the, uh, Jesus' life, and he thought Jesus would look, and he would do things differently than what he had done. So the question is, are you really who you say you are? And what Jesus does is beautiful. What Jesus does here is He he heals many people of diseases. And of many who are blind, He gives sight. But then He does this in verse 22. If you notice, some of you guys have, have a reference back to Isaiah. He quotes two passages of Isaiah. Isaiah 35 and 61. And what he does is he says, in essence, I am the king that's coming. It may look a little different, but 
I'm the fulfillment of these prophecies. But what's interesting is that he does something else. You see, he leaves off the tail end of the prophet, the prophetic word. Because he's saying all these great things are going to happen. There's going to be people who are going to be healed, who are going to see, who are going to... Um, things that are... That the poor will have good news preached to them. But he leaves off this part. Listen. Here, I'll read all of 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's quoted. He has sent me to bring up the, bind up the brokenhearted. And then he says this, to proclaim liberty to the, to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He's saying, John the Baptist, I'm who I said I am, but life isn't going to end well for you. <laughs> there's, no, there's no liberty of the captive for you. There's no freedom for you. You will die in the place that you've died. But, if you trust in Me, there is, it is not death to die. If you trust in Me, I am the real One who is to come. You know, there's a couple people who in their lives have dealt with doubt in a great and a profound way. Very few people have, have encouraged me and have, have spoke to me like uh, Pam Mengi. She's Betty's uh, daughter, or she was. She died at the age of 17 of cystic fibrosis. And as I was reading this again this week, I thought about this. She's talking about John the Baptist and uh, her doubts that she had gone through in her diagnosis. She said just two paragraphs I'd like to read for you. She said, If anyone should have had it all together when it came to believing in Jesus, it should have been John the Baptist. He walked the circuit up and down Galilee and told everyone he saw that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah. And John should have known he was Jesus' cousin. He wasn't even present on the day when God declared from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. How could it be more plain? John's faith should have been 100% sure, but it wasn't. Even John had some doubts. And then she says this, Jesus didn't put John on spiritual probation or preach to him a three-point sermon on trust. In fact, he turned around and complimented John on what a fine prophet he was. So reading that episode in Matthew 2 started me thinking that perhaps God understood my doubts too. So here's a woman who had great profound doubts. If, if the, the man who was called the greatest man by Jesus had doubts, maybe we have doubts too. Maybe we can have questions. But it's different and as diverse as these two men were, they had one thing in common, didn't they? Their lives intersected with the life of Jesus. For when life, for the life of Jesus came to bear in their lives, they had questions. They were confronted by thoughts and emotions and feelings in their lives. Fears and doubts. John the ba- or, I'm sorry, Herod had passed guilt. Fear of future Even though one was righteous, one was wicked, they both had questions. And it was Jesus who exposed the hearts and the souls of these men. I think it's interesting as we look at Herod. 
Herod, all he did was hear about Jesus. Jesus said nothing to this man. But here was a perfect, sinless man who performed great miracles, and all of a sudden, it got Herod thinking back to what he had done. Our fighter verse, if you guys are doing those this week, is Matthew 10.28, and I think it's very appropriate. It says, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who can kill both soul, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so Herod was a man who feared people. He feared those who may be against him. He feared John the Baptist, but tragically he didn't fear John's message. You know, what's interesting is in Luke 9, when Jesus, the word of Jesus comes to Herod, he thinks back to John the Baptist, but it says that he's perplexed by Jesus, which was the same word that it says in our text, that he was perplexed by John the Baptist. So he's perplexed by both of them, but his life was unchanged. He was removed from his kingdom, and he lived in exile. And then for John the Baptist, as Jesus focused in and shown on his and revealed him to him his life. Jesus' life looked different than what he expected. Perhaps John the Baptist feared that his life was wasted. He had lived in vain. It didn't really matter. But Herod was able to kill the body, right? But he wasn't able to kill the soul. So I thought about this. Are there two kings in this story? One, King Herod said, hey, you can have anything you want to Salome. And all he brought was violence and death. But King Jesus was one who promised all things and brings wholeness in life. And so for us, if we really meet Jesus, if our life really intersects with Him, if He shines on our life, He will expose us for who we really are. Some of us may be like Herod, living in fear, living in past regret, succumbing to passions and desires. If that's your case, you will see Jesus. Jesus and His perfect life and His calling on you will drive you to despair. You'll just see how far you've gone, how far you've screwed up, and how far you are from Him. But if you view Him as the perfect one for you, as the one who was without sin, who died for your sins, in that case, you'll realize how great He is. And instead of being far off, you can be close. And then there is no need for regret, for fear, for remorse, for guilt. But maybe there's some of the others of you who are like John the Baptist. And even though you may not admit it, you have deep doubts. Circumstances in your life cause you to question the Christian life. What's it all about? And God, He will speak, just like He spoke to John the Baptist. He's patient, and He'll say, I am who I say I am, but life may not go well for us. Finances may not come in. Medical prognosis may not be good. But we can trust Him, for Jesus was ridiculed. He was rejected. He was mocked. And so in both cases, if you look to Jesus for your validation... I'm sorry. In both cases, don't look to your own life as condemnation or validation. 
If you look to Jesus, His life, for validation, you can be whole. Here at Rock Valley Bible Church, we call that the good news. We call that the gospel. Trusting in Christ works for us. And I'll close with a quote from a Florida pastor. His name's Tulian Tavigian. He says this, The gospel focuses on Jesus' performance for us, not on our performance for Him. The gospel is good news that God does not relate to us based on our feats for Jesus, but on Jesus' feats for us. Let me read that again. The gospel focuses on Jesus' performance for us, not on our performance for Him. The gospel is the good news that God does not relate to us based on our feats for Jesus, but on Jesus' feats for us. Let's pray. Lord, wherever we are in this spectrum between Herod and a righteous John the Baptist, in all circumstances, You intersect and You have called us in our lives. And the question is, what will we do with that? For we all, at some point, will have doubts, will have fears, will have questions. And the question is, will we trust in our feats, in our accomplishments, in our performance for You, or will we trust in Your performance for us? I pray that that would be true of us, whoever we are, wherever we are in our lot in life. We pray this in Your name. Amen.